This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. Baby boomers have ruled the political roost for a quarter century. So what's their gift to future generations? A mountain of debt and a destabilized climate. They're going to die before climate probably has a very significant impact on their lives, and I'd like to see them move on. I, th I think they're standing in the way of genuine progress. But the young heirs to that boomer legacy aren't holding their breath. I've made this conscious decision to dedicate, you know, everything, um, every decision that I make, like, to mitigating climate change, because to me it's the most important thing that I can do. And some boomers are eager to lend a hand. You know, we're not dead yet. We can help it. We can help these, these kids and grandkids and so forth. Inheriting Climate Change, up next on Climate One. Is the baby boom generation's grip on political power preventing progress on climate change? Welcome to Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Devin Strolovich. Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. On today's show, Greg talks with leaders young and old, working across generations to educate people about the promise of clean energy and the perils of staying married to fossil fuels. We'll hear from high school activists worried about inheriting a destabilized climate, and from some of their elders concerned about their own generation's climate legacy. We begin with former venture capitalist and proud Gen Xer Bruce Gibney. As a partner in the Founders Fund, Gibney championed the philosophy that startups should not just build a business, but change the world. After leaving the company in 2012, Gibney turned to writing. His most recent book is A Generation of Sociopaths, How the Baby Boomers Betrayed America. Here's our conversation about inheriting climate change. Bruce, uh, you have a quote on the back of your book that I'd like to read, and uh, it says, Boomers squandered the greatest inheritance in history and are shamelessly irresponsible about crises from entitlement to the environment. What do you really think? <laughs> Tell us what you mean by that. Right. So this is uh, mainly a description of boomer political culture and, and obviously the sort of standard culture that sort of underwrites the entire boomer political culture. So my argument is not about individual boomers. One of the questions is, can you have an antisocial society, right? So antisocial personality disorder is the DSM-5's name for what used to be called... DSM being... I'm sorry, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. So in the, in the particular inventory that, that I was interested in, the antisocial personality disorder, you, you start you know, looking for a number of, of traits. So um, improvidence, sort of the, the inability to plan for the future, um, lack of empathy, not caring about other people, let's say younger people, people who might be alive when there are no ice caps, that kind of thing. You know, I, I sort of look for um, behaviors that map on to this sort of syndrome. And how, how are you going to, you know, demonstrate that, you know, a generation is improvident? Well, we have the cohort savings data for people, you know, stretching in some cases back seven decades. So we, we know how, you know, people have behaved and they've saved less and less. Um, and they've accumulated more and more debt. Some of those debts will be passed down. Now, not all the debts are financial, although they are quite considerable. And, you know, if you care about the environment, you actually probably should care about the national debt as well. But one of the, one of the sort of key non-financial debts that's being passed on is uh, the environmental debt um, that we owe. And so, you know, some people have said, well, you know, isn't it the case that, you know, we, we've been using fossil fuels for a long time? Is this not a boomer problem? And, and that's, that's true, right? I mean, like, you know, if you wanted to push it all the way back, you know, I'd ask Elon to build a time machine. I'd go back. I'd kill Zog, who invented fire in the cave. And, you know, so we can, we can push it back too far. But the question is, when did we become aware that environment, and, and in particular global warming, was becoming a serious problem? Now, now, people as early as the late 19th century were aware of the theoretical possibility that certain gases would contribute um, potentially to dangerous global warming. Al Alexander Graham Bell, I mean, he was a fairly prescient guy, um, was one of them. But by the 1970s, there was a growing concern that actually um, that human emissions of, of various gases, in particular of carbon dioxide, um, 
would pose problems down the line. So, um, you know, the sort of first multinational body um, to look at the influence of, of um, gases emitted on a warming climate was not the sort of famous IPCC, but actually it was the, the World uh, Climate Panel convened by Jimmy Carter in 1978-79. So we were aware of the potential um, uh, for environment to be a problem by the late 1970s, but we've seen no action that's adequate to the task um, since then. And, you know, it's helpful to compare that to what we saw both under Republicans and Democrats uh, during previous environmental crises. So in the late 1940s, the toxic smog uh, settled on Denora, Pennsylvania, which is just outside of Pittsburgh, and, and a few people died. And there was an outcry, and, and people said, you know, do you see, you need to do something about this, right? There, there are these pollutants, these toxic pollutants that the, the factories are emitting, and, and we have to have a response. And a study group was um, convened, and then the, the states were allowed to engage in their, their own experiments. And then um, Eisenhower sort of began pushing through um, uh, work at the federal level, and by 1963, the Clean Air Act was passed. So, you know, it's about 15 years. So maybe sort of optimistically, you would say that, you know, sort of by, let's say, 1995, you know, action would be taken, especially because you had a younger sort of, you know, progressive president. But really, nothing serious happened in response. So um, there, it does seem that boomer political culture is, is something of an outlier relative to prior political cultures, um, and, and its ability to, to sort of plan for the future and the environment, obviously, is a, is a key part of that future. So if someone cares about uh, climate change, which usually is on the left, why should they care about the financial debt, which is usually more of a concern on the political right? Sure. So, you know, when I was born in, in the 1970s, uh, national debt to GDP was 34 percent. And as of the end of last year, it was 106 percent on a gross basis. And, um, you know, we're going to exceed the World War II peaks in the late 2020s. And, and the problem is, you know, in, in order to deal successfully um, with climate, we're going to have to spend money. And the more money that we have to pay to service the interest on the debt, the more money that um, we divert to shoring up an unreformed ret- entitlement system for older people, um, the less fiscal room maneuver, maneuver we're going to have to deal with, with climate change. Um, so... You know, it's, it's, it's very difficult. Like, it would have been very difficult when um, debt was about 120% of GDP in 1946 to go back and ask the United States to fight another war. They didn't, you know, people were tired, people had died, they didn't want to pay for it. And if we find ourselves in the same position in the 2030s, you know, you, pe- people might respond, you know, we're, we're sort of fed up. We, we don't have the fiscal room. It's difficult enough to, you know, pay for a house, much less a college education. We just don't want to spend the money, and the problem will just compound. So we, we have fairly reasonable methods to address it now. We have the fiscal room to address it now. Um, we can either spend that money uh, on tax cuts, or we can start spending on research and development. We can spend it on the environment. We can spend it on a whole host of other things that are important to everyone, but especially younger people. Um, but one of the problems is the fiscal position in this country is already fairly bad, um, so that the deficit, which is going to be about minus 2.5% uh, of GDP right now, is going to expand to minus 5% on, under the business-as-usual scenario um, by, you know, within 10 years. So it's going to take a bad problem and make it vastly worse, and we're going to end the 2020s in a much worse fiscal position, and that's exactly when you know, people will you know, want to make extremely expensive investments in climate. Now, in the end, those investments will be worth it, but it's hard when you ask people you know, pay, let's say, a 5% climate surcharge, there, there might be incredible political resistance. Whereas if you ask people to pay a 1% climate surcharge now, people might actually, you know, sort of get behind it, or at least younger people might get behind that. But you don't think that'll happen because still the boomers are in charge and you think they should no longer be in charge? Yeah, so I think we have a principal agent dilemma. So just to be clear, the boomers are in charge. We have a boomer in the White House, as we have since Clinton. You know, Boomers were an outright majority of the electorate uh, in 1982, and even though their percentage has gone down, their rates of voting participation have gone up. Um, they controlled uh, 79% of the seats in the House in 2008 and still control a supermajority today. So they're, they're definitely in charge. But here, here's the way in which that's probably um, problematic, even if you don't buy my sort of description of them as, as a political culture of having sort of antisocial personality disorder. The reason why that's a problem is we have a principal agent dilemma. And the principal agent dilemma is, you know, if you, if you have someone who's, who's working for you, your attorney, your doctor, whatever, you, some, some fiduciary, 
you, you want them to be acting in your best interest, and you want them to be able to see things from your point of view. And if you have a, a seven-year-old uh, guy, to take a random example, um, you know, his time horizon for his beachfront property might be, let's say, 15 years. And in 15 years, it's probably fine to go around driving a Cadillac and, you know, mine coal and, and so on and so forth, because within that 15-year time frame of his own planning, within that time frame of his own imagination, it's not actually a problem for him. And we actually see this, for example, in, in public surveys of, of boomers as a whole, you know, just slightly more than a fifth of them believe that climate change will have a significant impact on their lives. And in this, they are correct, right? So they're going to die before climate probably has a very significant impact on their lives. So as our agents, right, if we, the American people, are the principals, right, in theory they work for us, if, you know, if our agents don't share the same goals and time horizons as we do, then, then there's a risk of a serious mismatch. So most people in Silicon Valley tend to be, well, there's a range, of course, senior people at Google, et cetera. But there's a lot of a generation of young entrepreneurs who fit the category you just described of 40-year-olds who ought to be concerned about climate impacting them. Is that part of their consciousness and their business plan? Or do they think that their wealth will insulate them and they'll be okay because they can buy a place on the hill if their waterfront place gets... Uh, they can buy many places on many hills. So that's, <laughs> but um, you know, some some of them are concerned with the issue. You know, we, we can question whether or not they're doing nearly enough. But there has been a trend, right, sort of towards like, um, you know, net zero on their data centers, right, trying to reduce their their carbon footprint on their data centers and and so on and so forth. And, you know, driving a Tesla. Because, of course, the batteries themselves are made of completely non-toxic materials. That's, you know, you know that's fine. It, actually, it's, it's better to have a Tesla than to have, you know, like a 1972 Cadillac Eldorado. So that's good. But <laughs> for Silicon Valley, so environment is, is sort of like a quasi-public good, much like national defense or the highways um, or foreign policy. It's, it's not something that you can ask even the most talented entrepreneur like Elon um, to go out and fix by himself. Now, he can make significant contributions to this, right? So you know, electric cars are better than, again, the, the Caddy Eldorado, right? And, um, you know, he's built, you know, he wants a backup biosphere on Mars in case we don't fix the climate problem. So he's you know, working on the rocket so that we can all escape. Um, or by all, I mean, yeah. not that many. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all who can afford, yes. I, I'm happy to offer you a friends and family discount. <laughs> I can do it. Um, but it's not a problem you can, you can ask um, you know, a single company to solve, and, and therefore it sort of you know, falls outside of their decision-making matrix, right? You really take, uh, you know, to say that a lot of things went in the wrong direction during the, the era of the boomers. SAT tests uh, went down when they were taking them and up since then. And, you know, uh, breastfeeding went in the wrong direction, all sorts of things. You blame Dr. Spock, lots of things. Um, are you angry at all at any boomers that you personally know? You dedicate the, the book to your parents. Uh, knowing what you... <laughs> You know, I don't think that we've enjoyed our strongest run of presidents um, in the union's history, right? So I think that's problematic. I don't think we've enjoyed um, the most forward-thinking um, senior congressional leadership. So, so I, am, I am angry at some boomer policymakers. Um, at individual boomers, sort of less so. Um, I am frustrated, and, and you, know, you know, it's been 25 years of this. I'm not sure that people actually improve at age 70, um, or, or maybe they just don't become radically different. Maybe they're just great to begin with, all right? But I, I, don't, I don't think they're going to become radically different. So I don't think we can expect a lot from the present political class, and I'd like to see them move on. I, th I think they're standing in the way of, of genuine progress. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about inheriting climate change. Up next, Greg Dalton and Bruce Gibney will be joined by some sympathetic boomers also concerned about handing down a hotter world. This younger generation will not only have to deal with the typical Freudian things that they go to therapy for about what their parents did, but now they're going to have to go to a climate therapist as well. That's coming up when Climate One continues. You're listening to Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking with Bruce Gibney, author of A Generation of Sociopaths, How the Boomers Betrayed America. Greg and Bruce are now joined by three more guests. Carlene Cullen is a former technology entrepreneur who is the founder and executive director of Cool the Earth, 
a group that educates school children and their parents about reducing carbon emissions. Michael Ranney is a professor of psychology at UC Berkeley, where he studies when people change their minds about climate and other issues. And Wilford Welch is a retired U.S. diplomat and business consultant and author of In Our Hands, a handbook of intergenerational actions to solve the climate crisis. Let's continue the conversation about inheriting climate change. Michael Randy, there's a view that the older boomers, they're the ones who uh, are not going to be affected by climate. They don't think to, to want to address it. They don't want to pay the cost for something where they don't see the benefits. Is there any potential to change their minds, those older boomers, on, on the facts of climate? Yeah, actually, we've had pretty good success uh, changing the minds of uh, uh, older boomers. And uh, actually, conservatives in general... I'm an experimental psychologist by training, and I run experiments, randomized experiments, where we try different materials, and uh, we found five different ways to uh, decrease denial about climate change or increase acceptance of climate change in five minutes or less. And uh, it's true uh, even for conservatives. It floats all the boats. Uh, one of the key things is we tell people that uh, the information we're giving them is true. They can share with their family tonight, and there's no deception involved. And that turns out to be pretty critical, and they can look it up on Google later. So there's a lot of, uh, of, of possibilities. It's certainly the case we know demographically that older people do tend to skew more conservatively and their ethnicity things involved as well. But I think fundamentally, there are uh, unfortunately a lot of younger people that aren't so down with climate change as well, although you know, it's a correlational sort of thing. So don't give up on the boomers. They can, be, they can come around on climate and engage to be part of the, part of the solution. Uh, Carlene Cullen, you're one of six, uh, one of seven children. You have some siblings in Texas who are t uh, skeptical about climate and drive SUVs. How do those conversations go? <laughs> well, <clears throat> when they tell you that uh, they ask it, my husband, do you read the New York Times? And he says, sure. And they said, I wouldn't wipe. Mm, okay, we're on radio. I can't say the rest of that, but literally they wouldn't touch the New York Times. So that's how, that's how far right they wouldn't are. Wouldn't rap fish in it, maybe. Wouldn't yes. rap fish in it. There you <laughs> yeah, go. Okay. Uh, so, you know, the conversation, it's pretty much a non-starter, no matter how much scientific evidence there is. Um, but instead, we can approach it in different ways. For instance, uh, I can talk about the pure torque on my electric vehicle and how many more uh, even American companies uh, like Chevy and uh, you know, that's coming towards an electric world. So it doesn't necessarily have to be just about climate change and reducing fossil fuel use. It can also be about a better world and a better uh, experience for them. LED lighting is much better than incandescent lighting. Uh, the same, we have a real opportunity with EVs uh, to get people moving over to that, regardless of their climate or their political uh, base. Wilfred Welch, you have numerous uh, grandchildren. Uh, how do you, is it easy to talk to them? Do there, is there any guilt when you look at them and, and think about mm, what the boomers have done, looking at grandchildren who will grow up in the world that Bruce Gibney described? No, I don't have any guilt in the sense that I'm I was born just before the Second World War, or just at the same time of the Second World War, and I have benefited all those years from the fossil fuels that have created this more is better and economic growth at all costs kind of culture. So I don't even blame the fossil fuel industry. I say the fossil fuel industry created all of this wealth, and now its time has come and gone, and it should have gone earlier. Okay? So I think my responsibility with my grandchildren is to support them in this transition. And that's what is happening uh, in the United States now in the fossil fuel industry declining no matter what Trump says and, and renewables are really taking off. So I'm, I'm hopeful for the future if we get our act together and I want to be part of that solution. Bruce, give me your take on the fossil fuel industry going away. They're still very powerful. They still control a lot of members of, or influence a lot of members of Congress. Right. So coal is going away by itself, but um, due to market forces, largely. right. Natural gas and oil are not right. So, you know, in a barrel of oil equivalent, the United States outproduces Saudi Arabia, plus a few other Arabian Emirates combined. Um, and fracking is obviously, you know, so um, natural gas is to the extent, you know, the transmission pipes aren't like leaching methane into the air and they're actually insulated and robust. It's better than oil and then, um, than coal. But the United States, just to be clear, is in, with the exception of coal, a fossil fuel renaissance. So the idea that, you know, it's going to sort of take care of itself is probably 
wrong. You know, the oldest boomers are reaching the end of their lives, and the younger boomers are just, you know, they're going to hit retirement within the decade. How will one sort of collect the, you know, many trillions of dollars required from the boomers, you know, in order to make the appropriate investments, right? So if we're talking about, like, an unjust enrichment, right, how do you claw back that amount of money from people who are, you know, up, you know, reaching the end of their lives or who have been resistant to contributing to the national fisc, who are sort of ardent proponents of, of tax cuts and, and of disaving, right? How do you allocate all those costs to the boomers? What, what contribution is this going to take over the relevant time frame of the next 15, 20 years? And if they are going to contribute, why haven't we seen meaningful contribution yet? Why was it that, you know, sort of cafe standards took a hiatus between 1986 under Reagan and, and 2010. Where was that contribution, right? Carlene Cullen, uh, some of the earliest people that you've trained you started at eight. Now they're 18. Uh, you sense that there's some coming anger that we're hearing from, from Bruce Gibney among the generation as they awaken and they realize what we are leaving them. Yeah, so I think there's a, one of my great fears is that uh, this generation, the younger generation, will not only have to deal with the typical Freudian things that they go to therapy for about what their parents did, but now they're going to have to go to a climate therapist as well, wondering, you know, what did, were my parents thinking? Um, I see that a lot of the kids feel very empowered, and they see the opportunity for change, and they're not afraid to say so. And they're not afraid to say so in a certain way that's not combative, because combative approaches can turn a lot of people off. Wilford Welch used to chair the board of the National Outdoor Leadership School, uh, which trains kids in backpacking in wilderness, kind of survival skills. Is that something that uh, you'd like to send your grandkids in case they need it in a climate-disrupted world? Well, to give a plug to something else I've been the chairman of, NatureBridge, which is really doing the work that Knowles is not. I am Knowles is part of my soul. But Knowles is providing skills to climb Mount Everest. NatureBridge and those organizations, there are a number of other ones too, are providing education to our young kids in stewardship of the planet. And that's really what is important. And that's what I'm going to send my, all of my grandchildren. Michael Ranney, if mm-hmm. someone encounters a climate skeptic, what's the best way to persuade them? Well, generally what I do is I try to make a little bit more apparent to them uh, how their denial is on a house of cards. So, for instance, uh, one of the more interesting uh, plane rides I took recently was uh, about a four-hour trip, and I was working on a talk, and this fellow next to me um, said, oh, you believe in that climate stuff, huh? And I said, well, yeah, it turns out I do. And he says, "Um, not so much for me. And I said, okay, so do you think Earth is heating up? And he said, yeah, I do. And I said, well, why do you think it's heating up? And he says, it's volcanoes, I think. And I said, oh, okay, so why now in this point of history has the Earth decided to heat us up? Why is there more volcanic activity now than before? And he said, oh, I don't know. And and I said, well, here, I have this explanation that explains why we're getting hotter now. And, uh, you know, the mechanism how sunlight comes in, it gets absorbed, sent out. Uh, Greenhouse gases don't care about the sunlight coming in, but they care a lot about the infrared going out. And because we're putting more and more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, that's why we're heating up. And my explanation does explain the change, and yours doesn't. So why would you believe your volcanic theory? And so we went on for quite a while, and there were other reasons that he denied it. Some of them, I think, were because of his business. He was connected to the fossil fuel industry. Some of it was (laughs) denial. By the way, that's a great argument. Yeah, not that directly, but indirectly. Denial, he had three children, and I think he was afraid. You know, he was probably about 70, and I didn't think he wanted to imagine an earth in which, you know, his kids and grandkids were going to be in this trouble. And so I think that was one of his reasons for denying it. And then also, as he was leaving, he said, and I don't like how political it's gotten, which is like the cultural part. And I've actually uh, published a theory about uh, why I think Americans are different in terms of thinking about climate. And I think culture is really important. But So he had this sort of uh, potpourri of things, and I would just keep trying to knock things out. And at the end, I said, you know, we're not dead yet. We can help it. We can help these, these kids and grandkids and so forth. And I, I think it's, it's interesting because... Every denier is a little bit different, and they bring a different kind of uh, panoply of reasons. But usually, if you just keep knocking out the legs of the table, eventually, you know, I, I think if I get anyone on the, 
on a desert island, even in center to Inhofe, I could turn him within you know a week or two. <laughs> Greg, could I could I yeah, sure, I Colleen Cullen? <laughs> yeah. Um, so you know, I just play the what's worse game. You know, what's worse if you're wrong in your denial? What's worse if I'm wrong in my belief of climate change? And you know, pretty quickly, it uh, you just look at risks and the risks of not believing in climate change and it being true are so over the top, so impossible that you really can't go back and say, well, I'm, you know, because I'm not 100% sure. They can't be 100% sure. But from my risk analysis, and if anybody goes down that path, it's pretty clear which way that they need to go. Right. There's the old Steve, uh, Steve Schneider was a late founding father of modern climate science at Stanford. We all take fire insurance on our homes. This is kind of an insurance policy, uh, even if it proves out to be not as bad as some people project. Carleen Cullen, you've also had some run-ins with people, cops, and confrontation in places like Texas and also in the San Francisco Bay Area with your school program. So tell us about some of the resistance you've met trying to bring climate into the classroom. Sure. Uh, So my husband and I started this program about 10 years ago. And uh, when we started, the nomenclature of climate change and global warming really wasn't commonly used. People weren't really, didn't know much about it at the time. Uh, And there was an incident where a parent kept harassing uh, the principal, saying that you can't bring this program to the school. You can't teach the kids this uh, climate science that's really not science at all. Uh, And it ended up being that she had to call the police because he started uh, harassing her at home. Uh, and, but it was true across the country. People, parents would come in with their laptops, uh, typically dads, sorry, dads, uh, and say, you know, this isn't true and here's why. Um, we were kicked out of a school in Texas, um, you know, camera crews, the whole deal, because uh, some, of the, some of the parents were up in arms that we were going to be teaching about climate science. But now over the past four years, we go into schools in Kansas, we go into schools in the middle of the heartland of the country, and there is virtually no resistance at all. So really, it's changed significantly um, the, the amount of acceptance about climate science, which is just fantastic. Well, for Welch. I think there are three ways that boomers may change their mind, these psychopaths that you talk about. Uh, One is their grandchildren. Another is guilt that we talked about. And the third, I think, unfortunately, is the more likely. And that is something really bad is going to happen, that all of a sudden, as in cumulative terms over the next several decades, it's not going to be just Bangladesh that goes underwater. It's a lot of other things that are going to hit us very close to home and they're going to wake us up. But then there's also, there's a clear shift. There are a lot of people that I know who are working. There are boomers, and they are making huge difference in terms of changing the conversation so that you can go to Kansas. Bruce Gibney, do you ever self-censor yourself when it comes to climate? Don't bring it up because it's kind of a controversial topic or it's kind of a downer, so uh, let's not go there. Let's talk about something else. No. No. <laughs> um, I'm retired, and I've been super lucky, and I think it's sort of one of my moral obligations, in addition to paying, like, you know, taxes, um, to um, just say what, you know, what I think is true. So, I mean, you know, one of the responsibilities, right, that, that comes with being fortunate in the society is, you know, is, is to be forthright and take, you know, positions that may be sort of unpopular, but that you, you believe, based on reasonable evidence, uh, are true, right? Reasonable evidence can't constitute four minutes of Bill O'Reilly. So, so you know, yeah, is, is climate kind of a downer? You know, yeah, there's a lot in life that's kind of a downer, you know, but it, it can all be, be dealt with. Um, you know, right now it can be dealt with at moderate expense. In the 2030s, it can be dealt with at extraordinary expense. You know, after that, you know, there's probably, you know, a lost causes to some, you know, some harms that are, avoidable now. There, there are probably some harms that, that are no longer avoidable, but they're, they're not, you know, sort of gigantic. Um, so, you know, I think there's room for optimism. Uh, so as long as there's a chance that you can change things, this is like a very Silicon Valley mentality, you know, even if the next couple of years, like even if the medium term is kind of a downer, but the long term is good, then, you know, I'm happy to bring it up because I think we can get, get to a good long term. Michael Ranney, really cool. self-censorship? Well, I think part of what, what we're not focusing on also is that there's another side that is providing a, a trope kind of information that would uh, uh, that I think we really need to counter. So, for instance, one of the tropes is that you can't trust scientists. And uh, there's this libel that sort of suggests that climate scientists, uh, you know, are just looking to get money from the National Science Foundation and so forth, and they only 
want global warming to be true, um, or since they're just you know addicted to that, or they're just yes people. And the fact of the matter is just the opposite of that. I mean, real scientists, like cognitive scientists like myself and, and climate scientists, they would love climate change to be false. Uh, in fact, I make this pledge every time I give a talk, I'll, I'll make the pledge here, that if someone could please just convince me that I'm deluded and global warming is not occurring, that I'd be so happy I would rent the largest SUV I could find, uh, drive it to wherever that person is, kiss them on the lips or everywhere, anywhere else they need to be kissed, <laughs> stop doing what I'm doing entirely, and I'd even give back any dollar I got in climate change funding. And in fact, any real scientist would leap at the chance to disconfirm global warming. I mean, you would be the most famous scientist who ever lived if you could just disconfirm global warming, and you'd get all this money from the fossil fuel industry. You could go into any bar in the world, and they'd buy you a beer, right? They'd say, oh, this, this is the guy who made it so I didn't have to put solar panels on my roof, something like that. <laughs> so it's not just uh, a sort of this benign denial, but there, there are actually people out there that are providing tropes that are just easily falsifiable, like the one that suggests that uh, scientists want global warming to be true. Say it ain't so, Joe, please. Say it ain't so. Michael Ranney, professor of psychology at UC Berkeley, talking about climate denial and the baby boomer legacy. We also heard from Bruce Gibney, author of A Generation of Sociopaths, How the Baby Boomers Betrayed America, Carlene Cullen, founder of the Cool the Earth campaign, and Wilfred Welch, a speaker on sustainability. This is Climate One. So what is it like for younger activists who come face to face with climate deniers? Let's hear from two youth organizers at the Sierra Club in Southern California on the challenges of educating older generations about climate change. My name is Raul Medelsnejas, and I live in Mecca, California. I am um, volunteering with the Sierra Club San Gregorio chapter. Air quality is one of the biggest issues in my community. My name is Ignacio uh, Enrique Ochoa Jr. I'm 25 years old, born and raised in uh, Coachella, California. The work I do is uh, centered around clean energy, we're trying to get California to 100% renewables. I mean, I'm 19. I would say I'm, I'm an older soul. But approaching people that are a lot older than me, it's, it's a bit difficult because I see that we, had, we just have different perspectives. I, I feel it's more resistant to change, if anything. It's like aging. It's, I guess, to some people, it's scary. And seeing their life and seeing everything evolve or, you know, it's just frightening. That whole Sierra Club you know, typically older, white demographic. It's still kind of there, and it, but it, it, this is a, a time of shift. It's mostly people of color involved, the youth of color, I should say. I think, you know, with the power of technology has, has really evened the playing field because an older person had more power in community because they had more connections. They lived through life, and a young person has to go through and make those connections. But when you have a phone in your hand, you get those connections, that the, the phone helps you find those connections faster. It's a lot more complicated than, just to put it as, it's the age. It's the background, the socioeconomic, that kind of uh, shapes this perception of, yes, climate change is real, no, it's not. I mean, their kids are fighting in the same fight they're fighting in. So for them, it's saying, I'll stand by my son, by my daughter, and I will fight this fight too. Ignacio Ochoa and Raul Zendejas, two young Sierra Club organizers on fighting climate change and resistance from older generations. Coming up, we'll hear from some millennials who aren't waiting till they're running things to fight for their climate future now. The shock of the election was exactly what the youth needed to really get off their feet and realize that something was wrong and something needed to happen quickly. And I think it really lit a fire under a lot of people. That's up next when Climate One continues. We continue now with Climate One and a conversation with two young climate activists. James Coleman is a senior at South San Francisco High School and an action fellow with Alliance for Climate Education, a group that presents climate assemblies in high schools in Boston, Raleigh, North Carolina, Las Vegas, New York City, and the San Francisco Bay Area. And Karina McWilliams is a student at South Eugene High School and an active member of Earth Guardians and other environmental organizations in Eugene, Oregon. Let's hear what they had to say to Greg Dalton about inheriting climate change. James Coleman, you were inspired by Standing Rock. Tell us how Standing Rock galvanized you and brought you more into environmental advocacy. 
there are people in Standing Rock, native people who are protesting for their right to clean water. And they were met with rubber bullets, mace, pepper spray, and high-pressure water hoses in freezing temperatures. And these are human rights violations happening right before our eyes in our country. People who just want to have clean water are being jeopardized by having oil pipelines run in their backyards. And it's scary because this doesn't happen anywhere in the country. And what did you do about it? You, you saw that on TV, right, or something? You saw it on the news, and then what did you do about it? With the help of ACE, I decided Alliance to... for Climate Education. Right. We started a supply drive at uh, my school to raise money and any supplies that we could send over to North Dakota and help the water protectors. Okay. And then, uh, but you weren't able to go to, uh, uh, to Standing Rock, would you, if you could? Um, I definitely would, but I don't think my mom would be okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, Karina McWilliams, you led uh, some efforts on a climate ordinance in your hometown. Tell us about that. So the Climate Recovery Ordinance was passed in Eugene in 2014, and it was basically this law saying that Eugene had to cut its carbon emissions um, in half by 2030. Um, and the issue with the bill was that it lacked um, specific legislation on when city officials had to get um, certain deadlines done and accomplished. So what my club and I did is we went uh, this past year, and we still are going every two weeks, and testified to the city council, um, basically telling them why climate change mattered to us and how their uh, action in city government if directly affected our futures. Um, and it ended up getting like some progress done. They passed a 350 carbon budget last June with a unanimous vote, so that was really cool. So... You're a teenager. You're, you're a junior in high school, which means you're, what, 16 or 17, and um, got a lot going on. And every two weeks, you're going to boring council hearings <laughs> at the city government. You know, tell us a little more. Why, why, why are you doing that? How did you get into that? Uh, well, I got into it through Professor Mary Christina Wood. Um, my co-leaders and I, uh, Wes Georgieve and Sage Fox at the time, um, now Alda McLean because Sage graduated, but... Um, she was like, you guys should go down and testify to, this, to the city council because this bill was passed, and like now you know, there's just a huge lack of action. Um, and at first, I was like really nervous to go down and testify because it's public speaking and it <laughs> wasn't initially my favorite. But um, yeah, th uh, that's how I got into it. And then uh, the process is you go to the city council meetings, you like write your testimony, maybe it's like a page, and then you go up and read it in front of the city council for about two or three minutes. Um, and then it's over, and it's like, it's quick, but it's super effective, because if you keep going every two weeks, then they're either going to, like, get tired of your face or, like, <laughs> actually hear what you're trying to tell them. Um, yeah, it's effective. James Coleman, you, uh, the Alliance for Climate Education that you're part of does a fabulous presentation in high schools. I've seen it. Uh, so if you were to explain kind of the basics of climate science uh, to someone who, who didn't understand it, how would you explain that? I explain it as right now a lot of companies, uh, factories, governments are polluting the earth in a way where they are putting lots of carbon in the form of CO2 in the atmosphere, and that causes what we call a greenhouse effect, where the sun's rays come to earth, bounce back up, and once it hits the CO2, it bounces back down. And that causes the earth to act as an oven, warming the earth more and more, and that causes climate change, where um, climate is different, more extreme, so you get more floods, more storms, um, hotter weather, and colder weather in places that usually don't have that. I've interviewed lots of scientists, and that's one of the clearest <laughs> explanations I've, I've heard. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the earth as an oven. Uh, there's also a time lag. Explain the time lag. So the effects of climate change that we are feeling today result from the emissions that were from the 1970s. And the emissions that we are emitting today will not be felt until 40 years down the road. And this is something that, that really displaces a sense of immediacy in this issue. Um, people look at climate change and say, oh, this will affect me 20 years from now. They don't feel the changes today, but it really makes it a lot more intimidating, a lot scarier to deal with. 
that is coming down the road. That time lag, yeah, it's kind of like, oh, off in the future. Green and Vic Williams, you participated in a project uh, protest with an organization called 350. Where, uh, tell us about that, where there's a, the oil drop involved, I think. Yeah, so, so that was about the COP21 conference in Paris. Uh-huh. Um, uh, it was the People's Climate March, I think, uh, December, about a year ago. And what we did was we had about four or 500 people um, dress all in uh, yellow, um, and they came to the march, and then they formed this shape of an oil drop, and they covered their heads with um, black plastic bags. And then they had this drone flying above and filming the entire thing, and then they took off the black plastic bag um, to reveal their yellow, and then they moved to form the shape of a sun. So it was this huge artistic thing of um, off, off oil and on to renewable, and it was really cool. Uh, James Coleman, what do you do around the house to walk the walk in, in your personal life to reduce your, both your water consumption, important here in the West, as well as your carbon footprint? What do you do? Um, at ACE, we learned that often our diet does impact the climate um, and where when we eat meat, that meat is grown on farms and those farm animals do produce um, methane and carbon dioxide that gets released in the air. And so at home, um, I'm not ready to be vegan yet, but I am trying to reduce my carbon footprint in what I eat. Karina McWilliams, what do you do in your life to uh, reduce your impact? Reduce my impact? I'll bike and walk to school when I can. Um, <clears throat> I'll take shorter showers. Yeah. You mean like, every, like everyday things? Yeah. What, what can an average person do? This climate thing seems so big and it requires big governments. Like what can people, it always seems like individual action. What can you do that matters? What can you do that matters? Just go to a march or like call, you know, <laughs> call your legislator. Don't um, take a shower. Go to a march. Yeah. And just plug into whatever's going on in your school or community. Because really, yeah, people are just looking for support and people to ally with. Yeah. James Coleman, we've had people here who say that what's happening with climate makes them think about whether they will be, you know, far away from you, for you, whether they will be a parent. Do you ever think about whether climate will affect your decision to be a parent? Um, I think it will. Um, Like, if I'm going to bring a child into this planet, will it be a healthy planet? Will they have the rights to clean water? Can they experience clean air? Can they go outside on the beach without being afraid of oil. These are things that we should think about, and I do not want to bring a child into a planet that is dying. Karina? Um, I kind of agree with James. Like, you know, if if my child isn't going to have clean air to breathe, then, you know, is it going to be worth it? Is it going to be, like, doing that person a favor? Um, Yeah. I think that's what that's kind of the mindset that everyone should be getting into that it, it's your children that are going to be having having to deal with the effects of climate change um not just like you know people 500 years from now it's happening today and like you know and tomorrow and then like you know in 10 years um it's just getting worse and worse and I think um that's a it's a really real question like you know you're you are going to have to deal with these effects uh, yeah. It's not abstract or far. It's not just polar, wa- polar bears and Pacific <laughs> Islands. James Coleman, what's one of your proudest moments of environmental activism? I'd say speaking out at the Stand Up for Science rally at the AGO conference. American Geophysical Union, huge conference of tens of thousands of scientists at Moscone Center in San Francisco, and you stood up in front of them. Pretty brave moment. Yeah, that was my uh, first real moment of public speaking. I was extremely nervous, heart beating on my chest, but I got through it and I see it as a real milestone in my life. Um, I'm an aspiring scientist and as scientists we see that they stick to their labs, they stick to their science, they're not really out in the political world. But right now we're seeing that politics and science are merging together and that Scientists have to be a voice in our society. They have to get out. They have to tell us what the facts are and how we should use our policy to, to fight climate change. Karina McWilliams, one of your proudest moments. Um, 
I don't know if I could pinpoint one proud moment, but I know one moment that stands out, stands out to me is when I was with um, 350 Eugene and some um, employees from our Children's Trust at this pizza place before uh, a city council meeting one night, I think, or maybe it was in March. But um, one woman asked me, uh, how, where, do you, where do you find this braveness to do what you're doing and like speak in front of everyone and put yourself out there? And I think I replied with, um, it's like my responsibility. And I think that was the moment that I really realized that like, I'm not doing this because you know, I, I like you know, being loud or talking a lot or like, you know, just participating in marches. I'm doing it because like, I need to because I don't have a choice. Um, and I think more than just being proud, that was just a defining moment of um, my entire like, career in, in climate activism. Let's give it up for these guys doing something really hard. <laughs> Not here because, because it's easy. Um, <laughs> we're going to go to our audience question. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. Uh, my name is Chris Rodriguez, and I'm here on behalf of the Green Academy at Abraham Lincoln High School. Uh, Mr. Coleman, you mentioned that uh, what we do now as far as our contribution to uh, uh, CO2 emissions and stuff in that regard. Uh, you said that we won't feel those effects till like about 40 years from now. Uh, I wanted to know uh, what's uh, in place or is there anything in place in regards to that? So James Coleman, the, the lag and the carbon we put up and the impacts it causes. Um, right now, we are very threatened on this issue. There's The only agreement that I'd say is in place to stop it would be the Paris Agreement. But even if we have that agreement by every single country, it's still not enough. And with the other cops uh, coming up throughout the years, we need to fight for stronger, stronger pushes from every single country, not just the U.S., but everywhere. All right, thank you. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. Hi, my name is uh, Kevin Huo. Um, I'm part of Students on Ice. Um, you know, there are many youth in the room today, and, you know, we have wonderful leaders on stage today. Um, you know, could you talk about one life-defining moment um, that, you know, you wake up to every day and say, that's the reason why I want to, you know, help save this planet? For me, it was certainly going to the Arctic and having that life-changing experience, and that's what caused me to create Climate One. I think you heard James talk about Dakota Access Pipeline. Anything else either of you'd like to add? I would say, um, for me, I wouldn't say there's like one life-defining moment. I, I know I mentioned the, that um, thing at the pizza shop before, but I think what drives me is kind of making the relation between um, getting involved in the climate activism movement for both the, you know, preserving the beauty and, you know, just the awesomeness of nature and, you know, the environment in which I live in, in which I've grown up in. Like, you know, I've, I, I love, like, Oregon's old growth forests, um, and I don't want to see those go away. But then also recognizing that climate change isn't just, like, affecting nature and, like, animals. Um, it's also affecting, like, the well-being of the entire world. And, like, you know, you can't, you can't have a functional society without, like, a stable climate or a stable atmosphere or, you know clean water, clean air, like it, it, it just, yeah, so for me, recognizing that it's like a global problem and an intersectional problem. Next question, welcome to Climate One. Hi, I'm Lomax Turner from Terra Linda High School in Santa Fe, California. Um, this is a question for everyone. Do you think the Obama administration did enough uh, to acknowledge the climate change crisis, and what is your current reaction to uh, the Trump administration's um, yeah, reaction to the climate change crisis? James Coleman, you're a budding political scientist. I think the Obama, the Obama administration is obviously better than the Republicans and what they're doing, but I don't think they did nearly enough. They, Obama could have spoke out against the Dakota Access Pipeline months before he did. And he could have tried to ban fracking, tried to speak out more against the issues. And there's always more that can be done with him. But nonetheless, he was good, and I am satisfied with what he did. Karina McWilliams? Um, I agree with James. I think that, I, I personally think that Obama didn't do nearly enough in his um, uh, presidency to combat climate change. You know, he kind of just did that campaign in his last six months of office uh, where he went around Alaska and, like, 
just kind of really drew attention to climate change. It was kind of just too little too late. But now after the Trump presidency, I think that, you know, on one hand, you know, just the shock of the election was exactly what the United States needed and especially the youth needed to really get off their feet and realize that something was wrong and something needed to happen quickly. And I think it really lit a fire under a lot of people. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. Hello, I'm Isabella Farfan and I'm from Marin School of Environmental Leadership. And my question is for everybody. And do you think uh, local change is more effective when you're starting out with this climate thing? (laughs) Or going to a higher power like what you're doing with the government? Karina McWilliams. Uh, so I firmly believe that all all change, you know, starts on the ground. Um, yeah, grassroots organizations are are really the way to go. Um, you know, because I think that power comes in numbers, and you know, how are you going to get numbers if you just go, you know, write a letter to the president where you know you're just going to get like a, a standardized letter back? Um, yeah. We have to wrap up quickly. Uh, James Coleman, what gives you hope? Um, an overall vision that four years from now, we will have a planet that's healthy for our children to live in. Karina McWilliams. Um, everyone else involved in the climate movement who uh, encourages each other and me. Greg Dalton has been talking about inheriting climate change with James Coleman, a senior at South San Francisco High School and an action fellow with Alliance for Climate Education and Karina McWilliams, a student at South Eugene High School and an active member of Earth Guardians and other environmental organizations in Eugene, Oregon. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. If you like the program, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes. And join us next time for another conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Climate One is a project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel and Tyler Reed are producers. The audio engineer is Mark Kirshner. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.